You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crime Season 1. Where is Lisa? Episode 2. Lisa is missing. I knew in my heart that, um, especially when I found out that she was supposed to be moving, that was not, that was not in her to not show up, especially because like, you know, her parents were going to help her and there was going to be people helping her. And I knew how excited she was to move. Like to her, it was like a brand new chapter. It was a brand new, she wasn't one to miss that, you know, she was very reliable and you could depend on her. You know, so that morning it was just panic. It was just like, where is she? Oh. The people that knew her knew that something bad had happened and we didn't want to think about the worst case scenario. And I don't even think in those hours that we went there but we knew that she was in trouble and you know and then you have to wait the 24 hours and it was like god knows what's gonna happen in 24 hours for her so that was kind of oh i just remember driving from one end of nanaimo to the other like just hitting every area we could think of and calling her phone and And it just going to answer machine, it was just like, something's not okay, something's wrong. Carol Ann Bosma is Lisa's foster sister. She recalls that dreadful period of time when she and Lisa's friends and family first realize that Lisa is gone. Horrible. It was horrible. Just driving everywhere you know like driving up into the mountains where you know the partying was checking out local you know there was people that you know there was places that you know the young adults went to party and and we you know we would go there and we would search that area just do a walkthrough looking for anything really hitting up people being like we had a picture of her and we'd be like have you seen her were you there that night were you out that night did you see her did you you know um Because as the days went on, we knew that something really bad had happened. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like the more days that went by, the scarier it got. So when you're out talking to people and showing her picture and looking, did you get any answers? Did anybody Mm -hmm. tell you anything? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. There was, um... A lot of, ugh, a lot of fear. A lot of, don't dig. Be careful. Um, And then it was really hard because you heard so many different stories 
And that's the hardest part, even years later, is that there's just so much stories. It's almost like a Stephen King novel, but the underlying theme is that she was at the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. And there's a lot of fear surrounding that. Still? Yep. Yep. Let's step back in time to the summer Lisa disappears. It's the end of June 2002, the start of the Canada Day long weekend. Soon the weather on the island will heat up, but for now it's still quite cool. The weekend is off to a cloudy start. Canada is celebrating its 135th birthday. In Nanaimo, thousands of people pack a park for a salmon barbecue. Nanaimo's mayor at the time describes it as another beautiful day in paradise. Waking up after the long weekend, you might have picked up the local paper to catch up on the news. This is pre-social media, before local dailies like the Nanaimo Daily News have been wiped out. The front page carries community stories about the long weekend. A picture of a baby celebrating his first Canada Day. A story about how busy the ferries are. And a report on how an all-night dry grad party went off without a hitch. But what's missing in that July 2nd edition of the paper is this. There is no story about the disappearance of a local woman. By Tuesday, July 2nd, Lisa Marie Young is missing for three days. Lisa is Indigenous, and in Canada and the United States, that makes her far more vulnerable, far more likely to be missing or murdered. If this happened today, Lisa's picture would be shared far and wide on social media. But this is 2002, and while that may seem like, and it is, fairly recent history. The local newspaper at the time reminds me just how much has happened since Lisa went missing. In that same edition, there's a story concerning police resources across the region. They are stretched as excavation work continues at the pig farm of serial killer Robert Picton. In the aftermath of the Picton investigation, police will face serious criticism for their handling of missing women's cases. And there is another issue front and center at the time Lisa disappears. Indigenous rights. The government has just held a referendum on treaties. It's a deeply divisive time, with Indigenous leaders calling for a boycott. The Nanaimo paper headline reads, Natives to Barbecue Referendum Ballots. A massive serial killer investigation underway. Racial tensions running high. All of this is swirling in the air the night Lisa vanishes. It's just after Christmas when I meet Lisa's dad, Don Young, in person for the first time. We've talked on the phone. We've discussed housing prices, commiserated about traffic. But what we haven't talked about not once is Don's daughter, Lisa Marie Young. Don lives in a quiet suburban Nanaimo neighborhood. 
His home is white with a fading blue trim. It's decorated for Christmas with lights and dangling snowflakes. The day is dreary, though. Gray, rainy. Typical December weather on the island. It's that weird space of time between Christmas and New Year's. I've waited till after Christmas to approach Dawn once again about an interview. So when I get a yes, I jump in my car and head across the island. Dawn's not comfortable with the media, and he isn't sure there is any real value in telling his story again. But now he tells me he just wants to get it over with. Okay, Dawn Young. Uh, grew up in Ajax, Ontario. Moved to Barberney when I was about 14 with my parents. Lived there for four years. Did high school and moved to Nanaimo. Pretty well been here ever since. Don looks older than the pictures I've seen in newspaper accounts. Of course he does. Almost two decades have passed. And during that time, Don has lost a daughter in the most tragic of circumstances. And not so long ago... Don also lost his wife, Joanne. Can you tell me how you first met Joanne? I met her when I was working in the Nanaimo. Yeah, and uh, I was 23 and she was like, she told me she was 18, but she was 17. <laughs> so, yeah, we were pretty young. Can you tell me about those sort of early days? Having kids out there, it was busy because they were two years apart, so... You know, Huey, Dewey, Louie kind of, they're all running around. And Lisa was 81, Brian's 82. Lisa's early 81, Brian's 82 and 82 a couple of days ago. And Robin's December 9th, 84. Yeah. So was Joanne staying at home with the kids? Uh, Yeah, 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 she stayed home. She worked a little later on in life, but... uh. For the early time, she stayed home. Yep. So Lisa was born here in Nanaimo, is that right? Uh, yes, she was. Can you just talk to me a little bit about what she was like as a little person? Uh, she's pretty feisty. She always was feisty. She was really good with her brothers, like really good. So she's like a little mummer to her brothers there, and she looked out for them. And What was she like as a young person in school she liked school she liked uh sports she liked basketball and she was kind of shortish so she tried extra hard because she wanted to you know be in the basketball team and I, th I think she did fine on there i don't know she was a good student well like all kids her age she liked going out to the clubs and that when she got old enough don is now in his 60s his hair is fully gray he struggles with arthritis and walks slowly but Don's not a complainer. He's matter-of-fact in the way that he talks about the cards he's been dealt. When I first ask him about Lisa, he responds with characteristic reticence. What can I say? It sucks. And, uh, you know, he always worried about her. So, you know, I always talk to her about it all the time. You know, call me, take a cab, do what you have to do to stay safe. Um tried to keep an eye out for her and uh, kind of broke the golden rule and not getting in a car where you don't really know somebody with somebody. I, I do want to ask you about all of that, yeah. of course, but I see you've got some yeah. pictures. Out. Yeah. Can you just uh, describe 
There's what just you... a few that were just hanging around. Uh, that's Lisa when she was little. So which one is Lisa in this picture? Right there. Right. Oh, cutie. <laughs> that's her with her little bike. We did rent Gabriella for a year just for something to do. We were renting still, and we just seen this beautiful place over there for rent, and we rented it. And it was nice for the kids, right? So in that picture, she's got a little pink bike with yeah. training wheels. Yeah. And she's got a cat in the basket. <laughs> that's her when she's all there. Oh, that's a beautiful yeah. picture. She's got long, dark hair. She looks quite serious in that picture. Yeah, she does, doesn't she? Now, in that picture, Don, how old is Lisa? That's a good question. I would say around 20. And she has she has a tattoo on her right arm. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. I can't really remember. It's a little rose on there, I think. Yeah. Do you remember her coming home with it? I remember her getting a few tattoos because yeah. she said she wanted them. I Okay. I'm not going to tell you not to get a tattoo, so, yeah. She was pretty strong-willed, like super strong-willed. The first thing I see as we step into his living area is a large frame sketch of Lisa. Dawn tells me it was created by a street artist in Ottawa. Joanne had traveled across the country to attend a gathering about murdered and missing Indigenous women. She came home with the sketch. And there is also Indigenous art. Beautiful handmade carvings surround the mantle. And in the entrance, a feather wall hanging drifts between the hallway and the living area. Dawn offers me a coffee as I grab a seat on a deep leather couch. Dawn points to a single large faux flower in a vase by the window. He tells me Joanne bought it. She liked that kind of thing. But now Joanne is gone, and Dawn lives here alone with his adult son, Robin. Can I ask, Don, um, one part that I'm still a little bit unclear on in Lisa's life? I interviewed a girl named Carol Ann, who right. described herself as her foster sister. Right. So there, there's a point in time when she's in uh, in foster care? For a little bit, yeah. Is that, at what, is she a teenager? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was because her mom and her weren't getting along, and it's just where she went for a while. And she was pretty pretty feisty, and she just didn't want to live there. It was Carol Ann's sense that with Lisa living close to you guys, uh, yeah. that she and her mom had worked to kind of repair. Yeah. Yeah, Lisa would admit that. But I think Lisa, Lisa likes living next door to us. And she, you know, wanted to see her mom, but at the same time wouldn't really admit it. Regular teenage relationship, there's usually a lot of friction in teenage years with kids and that. I look forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> I should we get all three? <laughs> yeah. It's... Don gets up and walks around a bit. Then he settles back in to continue our interview. We begin to discuss the night Lisa vanished. We were in an apartment at close to Country Club Mall. And, uh, Lisa was going out with her friends for somebody's birthday, and um, she came over, and I was watching a hockey game or something. We, she, her and I were really close, so she hung out for a while, and we had a beer, and she said, okay, I'm going out with my friends, and that was about it. So yeah. it, was, it was the Canada Day weekend, yeah. and it was quite 
late. Is that right? When she, when she left? Yeah. yeah, she didn't leave till, I don't know, might have been nine o'clock or so. Yeah. And do you recall who she left with? No, she left my place by herself and was being picked up outside the house, I think. That's all I remember. And am I correct on in thinking that she had recently left a job working at the palace? Um, sounds right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But but she was going to start a new job soon. Yeah, she was starting a new job real soon. Yeah, I can't remember if she was moving. I think she lived right next to us at that point in the apartment just beside us and with her girlfriends. And they were all moving out just that weekend. They had had it cleaned out and they were ready to roll. Who who was huh. she living with at that point? Well, two of her friends, Tara and uh, the other girl, I can't remember either. Tara still works, I think, at McDonald's. She's a manager. Because yeah. Lisa and her... I think that's where they met, working at McDonald's. Okay. Yeah. I did talk to um, a few different people who talked about how great Lisa was at her job at McDonald's. Yeah. Like, yeah. great with customers. Yeah. She was very, very good worker. I mean, really diligent. You know, knows the grindstone and all that. That, uh, I'm just going to go back to the kind of timeline, because I do want to make sure mm -hmm. I get it right. So you guys, you were planning on helping her move, I yeah. believe, right? Yes. So at what point in that morning did you did it occur to you that something was wrong? Well, we tried phoning your phone a bunch of times. I think they ended up out in Cedar, if I remember correctly. I think. And it wasn't unusual for her to sleep in if they did a night of partying, right? You know, at that age. So, you know, 10, 11 o'clock, we didn't worry about it too much. And Joanne and I went and got some takeout for breakfast. And we went and sat down at Departure Bay Beach, where we like to go sometimes, and checked out the scenery and still couldn't get her. And then we started getting worried because, you know, her phone didn't answer. I mean, sometimes people's phones, if they're dead, they go to voicemail right away. I can't remember what happened then, though. I think I don't think that was the case. I think it rang and didn't answer. I think. Yeah, we started getting pretty worried. And then we phoned the police, and they told us to wait for a day. And we said, no, this isn't right. And they came over. And uh, So, Don, yeah. th this is one of the things I did want to make sure I was clear on, because the newspaper accounts and the Crime Stoppers video, and there's some... Mm -hmm discrepancy i would say in terms of what happened um you've, the, you've seen that reenactment one on youtube yes yeah, yeah. girl looks like a lot like her eh? i did yeah. i did think that yes yeah. yeah but the video i think talks about it being a few days before the family contacted the police and that's no. not right no next morning and they gave us uh you know don't worry about it just wait till she's probably with her friends blah 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 and uh, we called back and we said no because we were tight. They, she didn't go a day without phoning us. You know, it's not like we, you know, she'd be away for a week and we didn't talk to her. We always talked to her. And plus, she lived right beside us. So, yeah. And we had to help her move. So that was unusual. I, I've heard through, I think it was through Carol, mm -hmm. that the initial um, discussion with the police officer who came who came over 
was that he was going to be off duty till Friday. This yeah. was Sunday. Yeah. And to ch- kind of check See what back happened in. and then check back in. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And I don't think we did that. I think we come back the next day and I can't remember if his partner came out because it was two of them. This period after Lisa first disappears is a blur of panicked phone calls to family, friends, and police. Dawn and Joanne begin to get a picture of their daughter's movements in the hours before she disappears. As time goes by, we hear about Lisa calling her friend Dallas and mm-hmm. saying that she's in the vehicle. Right. But in those early days, did you know that? Yeah. You did? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So she... how, how quickly did you hear that? Mm, pretty quick. Okay. Yeah, she was in the vehicle on Bowen Road, and these guys aren't driving me back. What the hell, you know? Let's, I don't know what's going on here. She's in the car waiting. Maybe she was locked in the car. I don't know. She didn't. Oh, she didn't know how to get out of the car. It was an old, older Jaguar, and you know, buttons. You know, English car. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know at that point whether she was getting very worried about it or she was more the type that would just say, well, I'll just tell these guys to uh-huh. get me back there and that's all there is to it, you know. Did Dallas contact you guys the next morning or how did you come to know about that phone call to him? Oh, well, the police told us that. So they, they had... It was pretty quick after. I don't think it was a long time, a day or two at the most before we found that out. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, she was in the car, Bowen Road. They're not bringing me back. And, you know, and she's phoning a party with a bunch of drunk teenager, early 20 people. So they're, you know, it's a fog, right? They're probably, uh, whatever, you know, Lisa on the phone. They, I don't think they thought too much of it. Too bad nobody was on the ball enough to, you know, be worried and call the cops and say, hey, check out this Jaguar, it's on Bowen, because it probably would have been pretty easy to cite it, eh? It was, uh, you know, late 80s, I think, Jaguar or 90s. So it was one of a kind, right? In the Nymo, I'm sure. So, unfortunate sequence of events. So the police um, identified that vehicle and the driver yeah. at what point? Uh, well, they knew, I think they knew the guy from the kids that had driven the Jaguar. Maybe they knew his name or something, and they contacted the grandmother, who was the real estate, and they went and got it and went through it. So they, the police did tell you that they went and looked at the car? They impounded it. They did. Went through it. They found found nothing. And the grandmother kind of had a lot of clout in Qualcomm, and she got really pushy with him and said, I'll sue you if you get out of line kind of thing. You know, so. Where where did, like, how did you learn that that information? Did the police say that? or About the grandmother? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, they did. Yeah. They also told us that because we went down to Qualcomm and put posters up, missing posters, and they said, you better not do that. Key pieces of information emerge quickly. They learn after the nightclub closed, Lisa and her friends met up with a guy in an older model, Red Jag. Some describe the Jag as maroon. Others say burgundy. It was the model from the late 80s, early 90s, and had distinctive rectangle headlights. 
we learn Lisa and her friends catch a lift with the Red Jag guy to a couple of house parties, and that later, Lisa winds up in the car with the Red Jag guy and calls her friend Dallas for help. When the police bring in the driver of the Red Jag for questioning, they ask Lisa's mom, Joanne, to attend the interview. Don Young describes what happened. Yeah, I wasn't with her. They picked her up at the apartment and zoomed her down to Parksville, where he was. I think it was Parksville, in lockup. And they uh, they could only hold him for so long, so they wanted to try and get something out of him because they didn't have enough to hold him for anything. And uh, they uh, got Joanne to confront him and, you know, get her to say, I'm the mother, I'm upset, what's happening, what happened to my daughter. And and apparently he, Joanne told me, he said, I can't. And that's all he would say. And apparently they couldn't legally get him, like, under his fingernails or anything, any evidence like that without more reasons. Huh. So they wanted to. They asked him to take his shirt off and he wouldn't. You know, because you're probably scratched if somebody's, you're, you know, upset with you. And the grandmother threatened to sue us. And we she said, threatened to sue you? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And we said, go ahead. Yeah, I think we put his name right on the posters. Like, the kid driving the Jaguar. Because it was information that was true anyway. He was driving the Jaguar. So it wasn't malicious or slanderous. It was just a fact. I guess maybe at, a, at the same time, are there searches happening, or what? What are they? What's being done to try and find Lisa? I think Joanne's family was doing more searches than anybody. Like they had some large groups of men come up and uh, basically they used our apartment for a, a you know home center and went to wherever they could, wherever they had any ideas or leads to, you know. And they, they did that many times over, many, many times, you know. Because you, you would get people from town phone you with sometimes lunatics, sometimes people that sound legitimate, this and this, and blah, 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 go look here, you know. Yeah. We did have one lady phone us. She was out the Nima River Road somewhere, and she knew that they were taking her body, and she was just frantic, too. When she phoned me, just frantic, like, you got to get out there. She knew what was going on, she said, and talked to the police about her, and they said she was kind of a, you know, bit of a space cadet, and they didn't put much credence in her what she said, but my own thought was that she knew what was going on, you know. After Lisa disappears, Dawn and Joanne receive many calls from people who claim to have information about Lisa. One that stands out for Dawn involves one of the city's most notorious criminals. He asked to meet with Don. He called me and he said he wanted to help out with the whole thing. Maybe we went for coffee at uh, Horton's. And yeah, I got pretty scary vibes off him. I, I think he was just checking me out to see what I knew, you know. And it was pretty uncomfortable. He came across as I care and I try to help people figure these things out. And, uh, yeah. This guy who sat and drank coffee with Don is someone many in Nanaimo believe had something to do with Lisa's disappearance. 
His name comes up repeatedly in interviews. But he has not been charged in connection with Lisa's case. No one ever has been. I don't have enough information to independently confirm he was there that night. So I won't be naming him here. Don and I sift through family pictures. There are so many happy memories of the days when the kids were young and he and Joanne would spend time camping and going out to the beach. When he shows me a picture of their wedding, I'm struck by how young they look in their 70s wedding outfits. Up until recently, an Indigenous woman like Joanne would have lost her status or be removed from band lists due to marrying a non-Indigenous person. I asked Don about whether they experienced much racism as a couple. No, I didn't even know Joanne was Native. I thought she was Italian or something. She just, she didn't have any kind of accent or anything, and I never really picked up on it for a while. Yeah, she did like being herself. She didn't, she, she appreciated the culture, but at the same time, she didn't, she didn't embrace it to the point of getting really wrapped up in it, but she still liked it, though. Yeah, she would tell me a lot of stuff about it. She did the, uh, they did the residential schools and all that stuff. Was I know her her parents were in residential school. Was yeah. Joanne as well? Yeah, Joanne and Carol. Both yeah. of them were. Yeah. Okay. And I think the brothers too. Really? Yeah. She uh, told me stories about that being just like a, just like a horror movie. You know, like all of a sudden you're just boom, you're out of your family and you're living in this weird place. Was she in, is it Mears Island? Is yeah. that where she was? Wow. Yeah, I need okay. to call it, I think it was called Kakos. That's, that's it, yeah. right. Carol said something about Joanne feeling like, at least early on, uh, a worry that the fact that she was Indigenous meant they didn't move as quickly as they could have, that there were some assumptions around yeah. uh, Lisa maybe being partying or something and... Did, did you ever have any of that concern about the investigation? They were like that right off the bat because the girl was partying and they deal with that all the time. And they pretty well said, just chill out and do what happens in a day. But I didn't get the impression it was anything to do with her being indigenous. No. No, I never got that impression. I think what Joanne was more concerned about was that she would get lumped in with Highway Tears missing oh. people and they were labeled a little bit more like prostitutes or drug addicts and things like that. She didn't want her daughter lumped in with that group because there was so many native people missing and they were, yeah, some of them were kind of drifters and they, you know, had some pretty big issues, you know, which Lisa didn't. She wasn't a drug addict. She was a social drinker. You know, she didn't get out of control. She made it to work and <laughs> that kind of thing. I knew Lisa's grandparents had endured residential schools, but I've learned Lisa's mom was also a survivor. Joanne would have been not much older than I am if she were alive today. Dawn doesn't seem to think Lisa's Indigenous heritage impacted the police investigation. On this point, I'm not convinced he's right. Lisa has just recently turned 21. Her birthday was back in May. She has been living in an apartment next door to her parents, and she's getting set to move into a new place the next day. Her dad, Don, plans to help her. 
Lisa is on the cusp of some big changes. A new apartment, a new job. But Lisa is 21. She has lots of friends and she loves going out with them. Lisa makes the decision to go out clubbing with her pals. In 2002, Nanaimo has a thriving club scene. The Jungle Cabaret is on a narrow winding strip called Skinner Street. The bar has been through a few name changes. After Lisa's disappearance, it became Club 241. Now, it's called Evolve. I'd heard that in addition to being the club where Lisa was last seen partying, she had also worked as a bartender here. I'm curious enough to track down owner Paul Manhas to check out that detail. Uh, my name is Paul Manhas. I'm the owner of the club. And uh, Lisa Marie uh, did not work at, at the club. She worked at the place called Ballas Hotel, which is also owned by me. And she was, uh, at the time when she disappeared, she was no longer working at the palace. So she was no longer our employee when she, um, her disappearance. So, uh, so that's a great clarification for me, because I think I had read in other places that she was a bartender at the jungle. So that's not right. No, she never worked at the jungle. Uh, it's all kind of stories that's been mis- uh, misrepresented. Uh, people picking up uh, information from wrong people and so on. And the day she disappeared, she was uh, 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 socializing and partying at the jungle. And uh, towards the end of the night, apparently, uh, no, no knowledge to us. But we heard a later date that she, that was the, one of the night that, that was her disappearance. And so she worked, you said, at the Palace? At Palace Hotel, which is right next door to the jungle. Okay. Is that, a, a, sorry, I haven't been in Nanaimo for a little while. Is that is that still there, the Palace? Yes, it is. It's been there for 120-some years. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so so what did what did Lisa Marie do there? She was a bartender at the Palace Hotel. For for how long? She was there short term, uh, short, short period of time. What, um, does that mean a year or months or? No, just a matter of a few weeks. Oh, a few weeks. Yes. Okay, because again, I had read somewhere that she was a bartender for two or three years. No. No, she was not. Did you ever meet her? Yes, I did. She was a pretty bright uh, and a very generous, uh, good, kind uh, uh, kid. Very, like, a good nature and a, and a good with other people, friendly with other people. She was, she was a, overall, she was a good people. Why did she only work for such a short time? Did she go on to do something else there? Or? Um, I can't recall why she left. Um, I don't know what happened. Uh, I don't, I can't remember. It's a long time ago. Can you describe to me what the club scene was like back then? Club scene was uh, pretty wild back then. Uh, since then, it kind of a slowdown. Um, the, the, all the clubs in downtown was pretty busy at that time. So I had someone else tell me that, you know, they used to kind of the the people used to kind of spill out onto the street and that little narrow street where the clubs are would get quite 
filled with people. Is that your recollection? Yes, it still does. It's, uh, at, at the closing time, uh, all the clubs emptied at 2 o'clock, and they all end up out on the street, and or they hanging out in the parking lot. So we try to disperse the crowd as quick as possible. Our employees do that. All the other clubs do the same thing, uh, because that's what we've been acquired by the law enforcement to make sure the club, the, the crowd, uh, just, you know, sort of a disperse as uh, quick as possible. Um, and we do that kind of a stuff. Yes, at, at the end of the night, at the, all the clubs close at the same time. And there are uh, four, let me see, one, two, three, four, five clubs on that street within the two blocks. And uh, when they all empty at two o'clock, and there's a lot of people on the street, yes. I don't. I know uh, this is going back a ways in time, but do you happen to recall, uh, you know, the days after she disappeared, what was happening in in the community and in the club scene then? People were shocked uh, to hear that. We were shocked, um, but no one knew what to do, and they, it was in the hands, RCMP hands, and the, for them to. Um, find out and I think uh, we're still shocked all the years gone by and uh, and it breaks my heart to even think about it every time I go back knowing that kid disappeared just like that and, and uh, hasn't been any um, you know any uh, any closure on this it just uh, you know breaks my heart it's been suggested that Lisa was shrewd about the dangers of the club scene as she had worked in it for years but Lisa didn't work at the jungle and was only briefly a bartender. And it's a small thing, but when Paul Manhas refers to Lisa Marie as a good kid, my heart breaks a little. Because Lisa had only just turned 21. She is so young on that night. As I try to imagine what downtown Nanaimo's club scene would have been like around that time, I have a recollection. I was there. It was my husband's birthday. We are both in nine to five jobs, but he's longing for a break. So I book us an overnight visit to Nanaimo. It's a 15 minute float plane trip away from Vancouver where I'm living at the time. We stay at a downtown hotel. And here's the point of this little trip down memory lane. Paul Manhas is not exaggerating when he says the club scene was wild back then. We went out to a few of the downtown bars. They were gritty, tough, reminded me of Vancouver's notorious downtown east side. And when we return to our hotel a few blocks from the jungle, we have a sleepless night, listening to the bars empty out. People are yelling, screaming really, biting, drunk, high. And I think of Lisa outside the jungle that night. There is still much I don't know about what happened in the early hours of Sunday morning. But I've spent months talking to friends, family, and others who know Lisa's story well. I've also poured over newspaper accounts from the time. Here's what I've been able to piece together so far. Saturday night, June 29, 2002. Lisa goes out to the Jungle Cabaret with friends. She is moving the next day, and she really shouldn't be partying late. 
But there's that other detail I learned from her foster sister, Carol Ann. Lisa takes birthdays seriously. She makes a big deal out of them. And the night Lisa disappears, she's out celebrating her friend Dallas Hulley's birthday. As far as we know, Lisa Marie and her friends remain at the Jungle Cabaret till closing time. At about 2.30 a.m., now early Sunday morning, Lisa and Dallas and some other friends empty out onto Skinner Street. It's here that Lisa meets up with the 27-year-old young man in the burgundy-colored Jaguar. He offers to drive them to another party out in the Harewood neighborhood. It's an area some locals called Scarewood for a time, as it had a bad reputation for rampant drug use and crime. In most accounts, the Red Jag guy is described as a stranger to Lisa and her friends. But one source tells me that Dallas knew the Red Jag guy, so he may not have been a stranger to all of them, which could make Lisa's decision to get into that Red Jag easier to understand. Lisa, Dallas, and her friends stay at that party for an hour or so before heading out to the Cather's Lake area to another party, again with the Red Jag guy. Shortly after arriving, Lisa wants to get food. She's a vegetarian. The young man in the Red Jag hears this and offers to give Lisa a lift to a place he says is open late. She leaves in the Jag alone with the man. Her other friends remain at the party. Shortly after that, Lisa calls Dallas. The man has taken her to another party, somewhere on Bowen Road. There are reports that Lisa reached out to other friends as well. And she makes a final plea to Dallas. Come get me. They won't let me leave. Here's something else I'm told about Dallas. Lisa and Dallas had dated for a time. I don't know whether this matters or not, but it does make me think a little differently about those final calls. Dallas wasn't simply one of Lisa's gang. He was someone she was close with for a time. Someone she trusted. Ahead in Episode 3, The Desperate Search for Lisa Marie Young. As a reporter, you cover so many different stories. A lot of stories have a lot of heartbreak. But Lisa's story has always bothered me the most of any, and I've had numerous nights without sleep as a result. Just this past weekend, thinking about this interview, I couldn't sleep on Saturday night. And I, th I think it's because it was early in my career, and there just hasn't been any answers. And this is one where I felt like there should be answers, and I've gotten to know Don and Joanne quite well and I just really feel for them in a massive way and, and I've had daughters since and that's made it worse in some ways because as a parent you, you would do anything to protect your kids and it just uh, it's, it's devastating in some ways I don't know how Don deals with it and Joanne, I, I can't help but feel that the pain that she felt over her missing daughter led to her death being a little more premature. It was a real weight on her, and, and it's just such an injustice that, that this hasn't been solved. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crime Season 1. Where is Lisa? Lisa. 